0: In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 10, the story of Warren G. Harding and the corrupt Ohio gang.
1: Cigar smoke filled the room, and the libations were poured liberally. Though prohibition was in full swing in the early 1920s, The men gambling at the small poker table had no fear of prosecution. The first lady, Florence Harding, was filling their glasses.
0: Her husband, President Warren G. Harding, sat hunched over the table scrutinizing his cards. The odds were poor, but Harding had a good feeling about his hand. Putting instinct ahead of intellect, he went all in, hoping to scare the other players into folding. It wouldn't be the first time he'd won on a bluff.
1: This time, Lady Luck didn't smile on the president. The men around the table knew him well. Most of them were members of his cabinet. Someone called his bet. And when the time came for the remaining players to lay their cards down, Harding had the low hand.
0: On the other side of the room, the First Lady hid her face in her hands. She knew exactly what her husband had just gambled away, an entire set of White House china dating back to Benjamin Harrison's administration.
1: The president had just hit the start of a losing streak that would consume his entire administration. After a lifetime of taking big risks and succeeding, he'd finally pushed his luck too far.
0: Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast Original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type political scandals in the search bar.
1: Today, we're talking about a pileup of scandals during the short-lived Warren G. Harding administration. His cabinet full of grifters was so corrupt, they became known as the Ohio Gang.
0: Coming up, we'll look at the gang's many crimes. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science verses. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon.
1: If there were beauty contests for presidents, Warren G. Harding would have at least made the final round. Maybe even gone home with the winner's sash. Born on November 2nd, 1865... Harding fit the proverbial tall, dark, and handsome description to a T. He stood six feet tall, with chiseled features, and an affable, sunny disposition.
0: During his political career, many people opined that voters liked Harding mostly because of his good looks and charm. That's at least partially true, but it misses an equally important point. Harding was one of the first U.S. presidents to understand the power of praising the status quo. Prior to entering politics, he made his living as a newspaperman. His paper, The Marion Star, rarely called for change or ran exciting exposés. Instead, Harding focused on promoting Marion, Ohio by running nonpartisan, positive stories about local people and businesses.
1: It worked. The town expanded. The local economy grew, and the paper gained subscribers. Harding came to believe that the best way to make people happy was simple. Just convince them that they already are
0: happy. Armed with that philosophy, Harding transitioned from journalism to politics. And after serving two terms in the Ohio State Senate, in 1910, 45-year-old Harding decided to run for governor, even though there was a potentially explosive scandal lurking in his private life.
1: Harding had no intention of leaving his wife, Florence, but he was madly in love with one Mrs. Carrie Phillips, who happened to be the wife of his good friend, Jim. Harding couldn't resist showering her in love notes, which often described intimate details of their affair.
0: One letter read, in part, Jerry came and will not go. Says he loves you, that you are the only, only love worthwhile in all this world, and I must tell you so. He is so utterly devoted that he only exists to give you all. That
1: doesn't sound so bad. Unless you happen to know that Jerry was Harding's nickname for a certain part of his own anatomy.
0: Despite leaving a lewd paper trail, Harding managed to keep voters in the dark about his personal life while he campaigned for governor. New admirers flocked to him as he blanketed Ohio in campaign flyers, all featuring his handsome face.
1: Among these was Nan Britton, a 14-year-old schoolgirl. She began following Harding around town and placing constant calls to his home. Nan even tried to get her parents to name her brother Warren. The baby was dubbed John instead, but Nan was permitted to hang Harding's campaign posters on her bedroom
0: walls. If they knew that Harding was a serial philanderer, Nan's parents might not have laughed off her age-inappropriate crush. But as usual, looks and charmed worked in Harding's favor. He looked like a gentleman and appearances were deceiving. Also watching Harding's every move in 1910, for very different reasons, was infamous Ohioan political operator Harry M. Dougherty. He saw something he liked. He would later recall that, during his first meeting with Warren, he had thought, gee, what a great-looking president he'd make.
1: Harding lost the 1910 election, but the two men continued to support each other politically. When Daugherty ran for chairman of the Ohio Republican Party in 1912, the Marion Star endorsed him. And when one of Ohio's U.S. Senate seats became available in 1914, Doherty put Harding forward as the Republican nominee. With the support of the party bosses, Harding coasted to victory.
0: So at the age of 49, Harding headed to Washington, D.C., where he completely failed to distinguish himself as a junior senator. He introduced no legislation of any particular importance and took no strong positions. Instead, he focused on the other half of Senate life, socializing. He was always happy to share his liquor or drop in for a poker game, especially if New Mexico's Senator Albert Bacon Fall was playing. The 54-year-old Wild West defense attorney-turned-politician became one of Harding's closest pals.
1: Senator Harding also spent his free time reconnecting with Nan Britton. Yes, the girl from Marion. In 1917, Nan, now 20 and a graduate of secretarial school, wrote to 52-year-old Harding, asking if he could help her find a job.
0: Harding did get Nan work as a stenographer at the United States Steel Corporation in New York, but he also immediately confessed his love for her.
1: For several months, they only kissed, but Harding eventually talked the virginal Nan out of her clothes by telling her what a beautiful bride she would be. When she finally consented, Harding took her to a hotel on Broadway Street.
0: According to her memoir, soon after Nan's first sexual experience concluded, the New York City vice squad burst in. They threatened to arrest both parties for adultery then a misdemeanor punishable by up to 90 days in jail. Luckily for both Harding and Nan, the cops skedaddled after realizing their target was a sitting senator. But it was an early harbinger of the many scandals to come for Harding, as time and again he put personal pleasure ahead of his political responsibilities.
1: With the 1920 presidential election looming, Harry Doherty foresaw that the Republican National Convention was very likely to be a split between two or more highly controversial candidates, leaving an opening for a surprise win by a third middle-of-the-road option. With that in mind, Daugherty convinced Harding to try running a dark horse campaign.
0: While his campaign manager schemed, Harding was distracted by some personal news. In February of 1919, Nan Britton discovered she was pregnant. She expected Harding to be pleased. He had often whispered fantasies into Nan's ear about raising a family together.
1: But Harding was going to run for president. A love child was not in his plans.
0: On October 22, 1919, Elizabeth Ann Christian was born. She would be Warren G. Harding's only child and he would never see her.
1: Harding never looked back. He only looked forward. Specifically, he looked towards the Republican National Convention, scheduled to open on June 8th of 1920.
0: On the first convention ballot, no candidate received a majority of delegate votes. The same happened on the second ballot, then the third, then the fourth, party bosses retired to the Blackstone Hotel for an emergency conference.
1: Overnight, the Republican power brokers agreed that Harding was the least offensive option still on the ballot. Unfortunately, he was in last place, but that the kingmakers could handle. Their only concern, were there any scandals lurking in his past that might hamper his campaign?
0: Harding assured the group there was nothing He didn't mention the 24-year-old mother of his only child who was in the audience at the convention, nor his friend's wife, Carrie Phillips, who had kept his florid love letters. And then there was his gambling problem. But Harding swore his closet was skeleton-free.
1: The party leadership convinced a few delegates to switch their allegiance to Harding. In exchange, they'd be rewarded in various ways.
0: It took 10 ballots to get Harding his majority, but they did it. Upon being called to the podium to accept the nomination, Harding joked, I feel like a man who goes all in on a pair of eights and comes out with aces full.
1: An appropriate analogy for a man about to take all his poker buddies with him to the White House.
0: The general election campaign was far easier than winning the nomination. Party officials soon found out about Carrie Phillips, but they were able to get rid of her with a $20,000 bribe, about $300,000 today, in addition to an ongoing monthly stipend. Meanwhile, Calvin Coolidge, just as bland and inoffensive as Harding, was nominated for vice president.
1: Harding mostly stayed in Ohio, running a front porch campaign from his home, his biggest promise was a return to normalcy following a world war and a dramatic Republican schism. He told the people they didn't need radical change. They just needed to go back to a time when Americans put America first.
0: On election day, Harding received 60.2% of the popular vote, the largest margin ever given to a presidential candidate since the two-party system began this should have been the setup for an effective and far-reaching presidency. But from his very first days in office, it was just the opposite. And after his inauguration on March 4, 1921, Harding seemed to think he'd been elected party animal in chief.
1: That's up next. Hi, it's Kate. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, we all know that medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? In the new ParCast series, Medical Murders, you'll discover a disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my dear friend host Alastair Merton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman. Or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And now back to the story.
1: After assuming the presidency in 1921, 55-year-old Warren G. Harding didn't seem to take the job seriously. Not only did he spend most of his time playing poker and golf, he staffed his presidential cabinet with his best pals. Harry Daugherty, instrumental in getting Harding the nomination, was rewarded handsomely with an appointment as attorney general.
0: The New York Times wrote that President Harding, rather than nominating one of the best minds for the AG job, had instead selected a best friend.
1: Darty brought another ally with him from Ohio. 50-year-old department store owner Jesse W. Smith, known as Jess, was a childhood friend of Darty's. Darty called Smith his personal aide at the Justice Department, But in reality, Smith's job was more along the lines of fixer. In other words, he did Doherty's dirty work.
0: Which was nothing new to Smith. Not much about his past was ever proven, but he was alleged to be a bootlegger. Prohibition had gone into effect nationally in January of 1919, creating a booming market for moonshine.
1: Also favored with a prime position was Albert Fall, the senator from New Mexico, who was a fixture at Harding's poker table. He became Secretary of the Interior, putting him in charge of the United States Natural Resources. Fall was a rancher and miner with an outspoken distaste for conservationism. So his appointment sparked immediate outrage from environmental advocates, even though they didn't know Fall's dirtiest secret.
0: He was deeply in debt, to the tune of more than $140,000, or more than $2 million today. And he hadn't paid taxes for eight years.
1: Fall was eager to exploit his position in the cabinet to pay off his debts. And as a former attorney credited with getting several notorious accused murderers off the hook, he knew exactly how to build a case. He started plotting immediately and decided to sell off America's natural resources in exchange for bribes.
0: President Harding likely never knew Fall was in such deep financial trouble. However, the president was easy to manipulate. Just get a little whiskey in him and he'd agree to do a friend nearly any favor. And whatever he wouldn't directly cooperate in could be accomplished while he was distracted by Nan Britton.
1: Yep, that's right. Though he never met their daughter, Harding was still seeing 24-year-old Nan. Within a few weeks of his inauguration, by all accounts, he started having sex with Nan in various White House closets. In between rendezvous, he sent his mistress money via the Secret Service.
0: While President Harding indulged his lust, Secretary Fall satisfied his greed. In the wake of World War I, President Taft had given the U.S. Naval Department control of several prime oil prospecting sites designated as Strategic Naval Oil Reserves. These were supposed to ensure that the U.S. Navy would always have enough oil to power its ships in the event of war.
1: Of course, if private interests could get the right to drill on these excellent oil-producing sites... They'd make a killing. And Secretary Fall knew American oil barons would pay handsomely for that opportunity. The only problem was the Department of the Interior didn't control the naval reserves. So Fall went to work on the president. He made his case for transferring control of the naval reserve sites to the Department of the Interior. America was no longer at war, he pointed out, and the Interior Department was supposed to be in charge of natural resources during peacetime.
0: Harding foolishly trusted that his friend had the country's best interests in mind. So on May 31st of 1921, President Harding signed an executive order transferring the U.S. Navy's oil reserves to the control of the Interior Department.
1: The Secretary of the Navy, Edwin C. Denby, was not impressed. It took Fall almost a year to persuade Denby to actually transfer control of the reserves.
0: Secretary Fall couldn't line his pockets until Denby came around, but that didn't stop other members of the Harding administration from spending the rest of 1921 enriching themselves. Like bootlegger Jess Smith, Now aid to Attorney General Harry M. Daugherty, who had eyes on a huge prize. $6.5 million in liberty bonds. The proceeds from the sale of German property seized during World War I.
1: During the war, the United States had seized all domestic property belonging to German nationals, including a corporation known as the American Metal Company. The U.S. government liquidated the company and invested the profits in liberty bonds. Now, with a new president in office, the AMC's former owners decided to file a claim for the return of their property.
0: Jess Smith learned of the request through his work with the Justice Department. He told the American Metal Company that if they wanted the government to review the claim, they would need to pay a small service fee to the tune of $50,000.
1: Smith facilitated the $50,000 bribe to the alien property custodian, Thomas Miller. In exchange, Miller approved the AMC's claim and Jess Smith reportedly got a huge kickback, $200,000 worth nearly $3 million today.
0: And $40,000 of this takeaway ended up in the bank account of Attorney General Harry Daugherty.
1: Not a bad deal for the American Metal Company, either. They got most of their $6.5 million in bonds back, the equivalent of $95 million today, in exchange for less than half a million in bribes.
0: Soon, another grifter joined the Rogues Gallery. Charles Forbes, appointed to lead the newly formed Veterans Bureau. Forbes had no qualifications for the position, aside from being a veteran himself. But he'd been instrumental in getting Harding the votes of the Washington delegation at the 1920 Republican National Convention. His wife was close to Mrs. Harding, and the two couples had even vacationed in Hawaii together.
1: With very little oversight or vetting, Forbes was placed in charge of the Veterans Department's half-billion-dollar budget. His primary task was to oversee the disability claims and healthcare needs of more than 300,000 wounded World War I veterans. But instead of taking care of his fellow soldiers, Forbes began focusing on fiduciary malfeasance, specifically
0: embezzling. Forbes failed to process veterans' disability claims. Only 47,000 claims were ever approved during his tenure. Meanwhile, he staffed up the veterans department with his own personal friends and took bribes to hand out federal contracts for the construction of veterans' hospitals.
1: Harding had promised the country a return to normalcy. Instead, he was delivering a grifter's free-for-all, and America's wounded war heroes were paying the price.
0: Throughout 1921, President Harding kept appointing his closest friends to the best jobs in his administration. And right under his nose, they were stealing from the taxpayers left and right. Attorney General Harry Doherty collected bribes through his fixer, Jess Smith. Secretary of the Interior Albert Fall was plotting to sell off drilling rights to the U.S. Naval Oil Reserves in exchange for bribes. And at the Veterans Department, newly appointed director Charles Forbes was directing funds into his own pockets rather than approving wounded veterans' disability claims.
1: In all, Forbes' tenure at the VD netted him an estimated $2 million, worth nearly $30 million today.
0: Meanwhile, Secretary Albert Fall was still trying to get himself out of debt on the backs of the American people. And finally, in April of 1922, he succeeded. After months of Fall's entreaties, Navy Secretary Denby agreed to implement Harding's previous executive order and transfer the Naval Reserves into the custody of the Interior Department.
1: Coming up next, Secretary Fall and the Ohio gang rob America even
0: blinder. And now, back to the story.
1: In early April of 1922, Warren G. Harding's Secretary of the Interior, Albert Fall, finally gained control of the U.S. Naval Oil Reserves. Immediately afterward, on April 7th, Fall leased the most desirable drilling site, Wyoming's Teapot Dome, to oil baron Harry Sinclair of the Mammoth Oil Company. If you've ever filled up at a Sinclair gas station... You've supported Harry's legacy.
0: Fall also leased a prime oil prospecting site in California, Kern County's Elk Hills, to Edward Doheny of the Pan American Petroleum and Transport Company. Both leases were no-bid deals.
1: In other words, neither Pan Am nor Mammoth Oil had to engage against any of their many competitors for the drilling rights.
0: In and of itself, it wasn't illegal to lease out public lands in no-bid contracts. But no public official would have done so without getting something in return. And Secretary Fall got a $100,000 loan from Edward Doheny, which he was not expected to repay. That's about $1.5 million in today's dollars. Sinclair
1: paid even more for the biggest prize, Teapot Dome. His bill for Albert Fall's unprofessional services came to $269,000.
0: In total, Secretary Fall pocketed the equivalent of about $5.7 million in today's money. At the cost of making his own country a little less safe and a lot more corrupt, he paid off his personal debts and bought a second ranch in New Mexico.
1: There's no clear evidence that Warren Harding knew about all the grifting going on under his nose. Most historians think he was probably more ignorant than complicit, but he certainly didn't go out of his way to check up on his appointees' performance either. He mostly saw them at the poker table, including the fateful night when Harding gambled away a full set of the White House china.
0: Still, Harding can't be entirely absolved, In April of 1922, immediately after the Teapot Dome lease, a Wyoming oil operator named Leslie Miller noticed Mammoth Oil Company trucks hauling drilling equipment into Teapot Dome. He asked his senator, John Kendrick, to examine how Harry Sinclair had gotten the drilling rights without a public bidding process. The Senate Committee on Public Lands launched an investigation.
1: When the committee asked President Harding to explain the no-bid deal, Harding simply told them he supported Secretary Fall completely.
0: This did not placate the Senate, which continued to investigate, nor the public. With an official Senate investigation in full swing, the papers quickly caught wind of the scandal.
1: Suddenly, it was open season on Harding, less than two years after he'd secured the presidency by the largest margin of all time. Writing for American Heritage in 1965, Bruce Bliven called the Harding Cabinet one of the most astonishing collections of crooks, grafters, and blackmailers ever assembled.
0: Editorial cartoonists joined in eagerly lambasting the president. One particularly famous example depicted a teapot-shaped steamroller rapidly accelerating downhill on a street labeled White House Highway while Harding and his cronies tried desperately to flee from its path.
1: The cartoon only got one thing wrong. There wasn't one steamroller headed for President Harding. There were several.
0: One of them was named Jess Smith. In addition to taking bribes from the American Metal Company, he'd started accepting money from alcohol bootleggers in exchange for guaranteeing that they wouldn't be prosecuted. He had the help of a corrupt FBI agent... But with the increased public scrutiny directed towards the Harding administration, Jess became increasingly nervous about getting caught. He started behaving erratically, drawing unwanted attention towards Harding's Justice Department.
1: Another steamroller coming for Harding was Charles Forbes at the Veterans Department. He was getting more and more reckless by the day. In November of 1922, he started selling government-owned medical supplies to private parties at steep discounts in exchange for generous kickbacks.
0: That got Forbes notice by Dr. Charles Elmer Sawyer, head of the Federal Hospitalization Board, President Harding's personal physician, and one of the few honest men in the Harding administration. By
1: January of 1923, Dr. Sawyer had proven to President Harding's satisfaction that Forbes was corrupt. Harding physically pinned Forbes against the wall of the Oval Office and screamed in his face, You rat! You yellow double-crossing bastard!
0: Harding insisted that Forbes resign immediately and then sail for Europe in hopes of preventing a scandal. But that genie was already out of the bottle. Forbes' grift during his time at the Veterans Bureau was so poorly hidden that the newspapers were already sniffing around.
1: And then there was the final steamroller. Her name was Mrs. Harding. Some of what we know about her final days with Mr. Harding comes from dubious sources, but it's likely that sometime in early 1923, she learned about Nan Britton and her daughter.
0: This set off an awful fight. In tears, Mrs. Harding, who was dreadfully ill with kidney disease, asked the president to please think of our young love.
1: To which he callously replied while shaking his fist at his wife, love, I never loved you.
0: Despite his bold words, President Harding was breaking down. He confided to a friend that his life felt empty and that he was miserable in the Oval Office.
1: Then, on May 23rd, 1923, Jess Smith died of a gunshot wound to the head after destroying various papers pertaining to his work for Attorney General Daugherty. The police deemed his death a suicide. Of course, the suspicious killing of an influential Justice Department aide drew the attention of the FBI, not to mention journalists across the country.
0: This sent Harding even further into a tailspin. Struggling with what would likely be recognized today as depression, in early 1923, he sold his interest in his newspaper, The Marion Star. He'd always hoped to return to it after his presidency, but now it seemed he felt there was no future for him.
1: Around the same time, 57-year-old President Harding updated his will he was experiencing intense bouts of physical exhaustion, which he attributed to the stress of the presidency. His friends noticed he could no longer even play golf without wheezing and stopping to catch his breath.
0: Instead of going to his physician for help, Harding prescribed for himself a working vacation. In June of 1923, he set off on a journey to Alaska. Along the way there and back, he booked speaking engagements all across America, He hoped the epic tour would unify the country, distract Americans from the many scandals about to break within his administration, and most importantly, settle his own nerves.
1: President Harding and an extensive entourage visited Yellowstone National Park, spoke all across the American West, and then became the first sitting president to visit Alaska, a U.S. territory he'd long admired.
0: Sadly, a heat wave struck Alaska during the presidential visit, exacerbating Harding's declining health. On July 5th, he spoke for hours in 94-degree heat in Fairbanks, Alaska, the very last place he expected to risk heat stroke.
1: Also during his time in Alaska, Harding received an urgent coded message from Washington, D.C. It came by seaplane. Harding was too far north to be reached by any other means. The president never shared the message's contents with anyone. He did, however, call an urgent meeting with Herbert Hoover, then his secretary of commerce and one of the few non-cronies in the cabinet. Hoover was not particularly loyal to Harding's administration and had been surprised to be invited to Alaska. In other words, Herbert Hoover was the kind of person a politician turns to when he's tired of talking to yes-men.
0: Harding asked Hoover, if you knew of a great scandal in our administration, would you, for the good of the country and the party, expose it publicly, or would you bury it?
1: Publish it, and at least get integrity on your side, advised Hoover. This wasn't the answer Harding hoped to hear. After a little more discussion, the meeting ended. Hoover, somewhat mystified, returned to his own duties.
0: The president was later seen by his valet lying face down and motionless in his bunk on the ship. When the valet asked if Harding was all right, he replied in a morose tone, I hope the boat sinks.
1: In the following days, Harding was visibly weary, but he refused to cut short his journey. He headed back from Alaska by way of Canada where he became the first U.S. president to pay a visit to our closest northern neighbor. On July 26, 1923, Harding spoke to a packed house in Vancouver, British Columbia.
0: Without stopping to rest, the president journeyed on to his next appointment at the University of Washington in Seattle. Visibly exhausted, he spoke briefly and left the stage without even waiting for the crowd's applause to die down.
1: That night, On July 27, 1923, the 57-year-old president had a heart attack. His personal physician, Dr. Sawyer, misdiagnosed it as indigestion. Nonetheless, his weekend engagements in Portland were canceled. Harding then traveled on to San Francisco, where he decided to convalesce at the Palace Hotel.
0: The president improved briefly under round-the-clock care. Harding seemed more like himself by the evening of August 2nd when he asked his wife to read to him from the Saturday Evening Post.
1: Florence ministered kindly to her unfaithful husband in his time of need. She found an article in the Post that praised the president and began reading aloud. When she paused briefly, Harding smiled at her and said, That's good. Go on, read some more.
0: Then Warren G. Harding spasmed violently in his bed and died. His heart had finally given out. On August 2, 1923, the 29th president was dead after serving only 29 months of his four year term. The
1: nation went into mourning. An estimated 9 million people turned out to see the train carrying his body back to the Capitol as it passed by.
0: By dying in office, Harding dodged the many steamrollers of scandal heading his way. He didn't live to see Albert Fall become the first and so far only member of a presidential cabinet convicted of taking a bribe while in office.
1: He didn't live to see Harry M. Daugherty, His former campaign manager tried twice for corruption and acquitted only because a single juror couldn't make up his mind.
0: And he missed out on seeing Charles Forbes of the Veterans Department sentenced to prison for conspiracy to defraud the United States government.
1: President Harding even missed out on the nickname that came to define his entire cabinet, the Ohio Gang. It stuck even though the worst of them, Fall and Forbes, were from New Mexico and Scotland, respectively.
0: Calvin Coolidge, largely invisible as vice president, ascended to the presidency and purged the administration of Harding's cronies. But for a long time, the Teapot Dome affair was considered the biggest presidential scandal in American history. It wasn't until Richard Nixon came along that another scandal gave it a run for its money.
1: It's easy to feel a little bit sorry for President Harding. He just wanted to pay his friends back for helping him gain power. He probably didn't know they planned to steal millions from American taxpayers.
0: But if there's a lesson to be learned from the scandal-ridden two-year Harding presidency, it might be this. If a politician promises you a return to normalcy, as Harding did in his 1920 campaign, take a moment to consider what normal means in politics. As you know if you've been listening to our show, scandal is often the rule, not the exception.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal number 9 about Woodrow Wilson, whose controversial engagement allegedly risked the unthinkable, a woman in power in the Oval
0: Office. Among the many sources we used in researching this episode, we found the book, the Ohio Gang, The World of Warren G. Harding by Charles L. Mee Jr. particularly helpful.
1: You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time.
1: Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. Before we go, I hope you remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.